The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. The following program is a PodcastOne.com production. He's a world champion wrestler, best-selling author, actor, and lead singer of Fozzy. Now, now he's rocking the podcast world. Yay! This, this, this is Talk is Jericho. Talk is Jericho. Starring Chris Jericho. Welcome to Talk is Jericho. I am Chris Jericho, and you are listening to the Pot of Thunder and Rock and Roll. Yes, your remedy for boredom now, twice a week, every Wednesday, every Friday. Have you picked it up yet? Are you in the habit? Are you in the habit of listening both days now? I uh, hope it's not giving you a little bit of uh, a burnout. I know there's a lot of podcasts on the air, but none of them are quite like mine. Now, are they? Right? Don't you agree? Where else can you hear such amazing, ridiculous trivia, such amazing guests, both on the line, in the studio, sitting beside me. I got Bill Cosby right here. I'm happy to have you on twice a week, fleas and flies and floop and jello. And I'm really happy that you're doing so good on the fleas and flu jello show. Thank you, Bill. I appreciate it. Always nice to have a cameo from Bill Cosby on Talk is Jericho. Today, Scott Ian from Anthrax is here Really excited to have him. Lots of cool stuff to talk about. And, and it's great to be on on a Friday. I mean, it's always uh, Friday, Saturday are kind of the two most popular days of the week, right? Even so much that there's songs written about both. There's not a lot of songs about Wednesday. You know, I've never, I don't think I've ever heard of a song with Wednesday in it. If you've, if you've heard one, shoot it to me uh, at Talk is Jericho on the Twitter. But I mean, probably the most famous Friday song is Rebecca Black. It's Oh, so funny, like, who is this girl? I think, like, her dad was super rich and made this video, uh, gave her, like, a, uh, you know, here, go to the studio and, and here's a song for her. Maybe she wrote the song herself. I don't know. But it's, like, so catchy and so stupid. But I wonder, like, is, is she, like, already done? Is she a flash in the pan? Like, is she going to go to prom with Psy, who did Gangnam Style? Are they, like, the biggest one-hit wonders of 2013? Maybe they should get together with Dexy's Midnight Runners and, and go on tour. And whoever the guys who ever wrote Pac-Man Fever. Remember that? Remember that song that like when Pac-Man, when I was like eight, Pac-Man was the biggest uh, game in the world. And there's actually even a song about it called Pac-Man Fever. It was just awful. I'm gonna eat them all. Soon as they tell 
Yeah, total 80s crap, right? And then you got Black Friday by Steely Dan, Freaky Friday by Aqua. Isn't that the ones that did Barbie Girl, I think? It was supposed to be their other song. Friday by Joe Jackson. That's kind of cool. I like Friday, I'm in love. The Cure. Tuesday, I'm in love. Friday, I'm in love. Whatever it is. How does it go? Thursday, I don't care about you. It's Friday, I'm in love. Ah, that's how it goes. Yes. Always good to have The Cure. David Bowie. Friday on my mind. Katy Perry. TGIF. Last Friday night. How awesome are Katy Perry's um, bosoms? I saw them on the cover of the magazine the other day. It's like, oh my God, they're just jumping out. Just like, hello, Chris. I'm Katy Perry's bosoms. I want to talk to you and see how you're doing. It kind of sounds like a country version of Paul Stanley. All right, people. Y'all. Katy Perry's boobs. I love them. I want to have them guest on the show. Maybe Katy Perry's boobs and Oates's mustache can hook up. I remember when Katy Perry was only about 15 years old and she said, come to the show. She was always looking to, to hook up with me. I am the worst impressionist in the world, and yet I love doing them. So if you listen to Talk is Jericho, you will get to hear them. And then my favorite song with Friday in it, Good Morning, Black Friday, Megadeth. Black Friday, Paint the Devil on the Wall. Ooh. It's pretty, uh, pretty creepy stuff from old Megadave. But we're not creepy here. We're happy to have you on a Friday. Listen, I want to address something that everyone's been asking me on the Twitter, on Facebook, in real life. Apparently, on WWE Raw, or all WWE shows, Randy Orton won the... Uh, he, he combined the two titles. He had a match with John Cena and combined the two titles and walked out as the undisputed champion. And they announced him on the show as the first Undisputed Champion. And people are like, what do you think? Oh, that's an uproar. It's outrageous. You you were the first Undisputed Champion. This is not right. Everybody's just up in arms about it and freaking out. But my my advice is don't freak out. I mean, listen, let, let's be honest, okay? Yes, I was the first uh, Undisputed Champion. I combined the WCW and WWE titles. I think it might have even WWF titles at the time. It was back in 2001. I beat The Rock and Stone Cold Steve Austin in the same night and became the Undisputed Champion. It was a tournament, uh, uh, Rock, Austin, Jericho, Angle. But, I mean, that's, you know, in, in the world of wrestling, I always say, like, it's almost like dog years. Like, one year of wrestling equals seven years. Like, time goes by so fast in the world of the WWE. So 2001 might as well have been, like, ancient history. You know, it's like when the cavemen first have rest, first had wrestling, Jericho was the undisputed champion because 2001, I mean, 13 years ago, that's a long time. And there's always a constant turnover of fans. So while there might be, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 percent of, of the people who know that Chris Jericho was the first undisputed champion, it doesn't mean that everybody does. And also, it's not quite as good. Uh, it's not quite as, 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 as uh, catchy to say 
Randy Orton is the second undisputed champion of all time. Well, where's the first? What's well, Jericho? Well, where is he? Well, he's not here. Well, why not? It's just it's too complicated. So it's all good in the hood. Don't worry about it. Yes, we all know that I was the first undisputed champion. But if the WWE wants to say that Orton was, then let him. It doesn't really matter, right? What difference does it make? If you know that I was, then you know. If you don't, well, then you'll never, never worry about it anyways, right? If I go back to the show... Then I've got an instant angle. Hey, you, Randy Orton, get your damn hands off her. I was the first undisputed champion. That's what I would say. That would be my promo if I came back. But uh, (laughs) when I did the tournament in 2001, December 2001, the show was in San Diego. And I wrestled against The Rock, beat him, and went directly into the second match with Stone Cold Steve Austin, my good pal Stone Cold Steve Austin. Go listen to the Steve Austin show on podcast1.com. Both shows. He's 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 excellent. So anyways, I, I worked against Austin, beat him. Um he leaves, big pomp and circumstance. Vince comes down, ca- confetti falling from the ceiling. I'm the big champion. Walk through the back, Vince disappears and everybody's gone. Like there's nobody left. So I went and just kind of sat down on this big roll of carpet. You know, the carpet, when it was before, it's been like uh, stapled into the ground or whatever they do. And there's like big giant like rolls of it where you can sit on it. So I sat on that and I just kind of sat there. I'm like, oh, wow, I'm actually the champion. Like, you know, rah, 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 good for me, whatever. And it was a good feeling, but it was a hard match. And I wasn't really super happy with the crowd reaction. They were kind of confused. I don't think they had any chance, thought I had any chance of winning. So I was kind of just like, you know reflecting upon the moment and then I went back in the dressing room and now everybody's gone and I remember something that Roddy Piper had told me years before he said you know it's lonely when you're in the last match because when you get to the back everybody's gone you got nobody to talk to I mean you're literally like the last guy you're the big star in the show and nobody's nobody cares like they're just happy that they were able to beat the traffic while you were in the ring so I Changed out of my gear, and I had two titles like Randy does, the two, uh, the WWE Championship and the WCW Championship, and then, you know, put them in my bag, and they're really heavy, and I get in my car, and I'm driving from San Diego. The next show was in Anaheim. So I drive to the hotel in Anaheim, and I arrive there at, like, 12.01. And I go to the front desk, and I'm like, yes, I'm checking in, and I'd like to get something to eat. Like, We're sorry. Room service closed at 11. Well, what about the bar? The bar closed at 12. It's 12.01. I'm sorry. It's closed. And I'm like, okay. I'm thinking to myself, like, hello, I just won the <laughs> Undisputed Championship. Isn't that worth something? But I'm fine. I'll never pull the do you know who I am, but I'm Chris Jericho card. So I go up to my room, and I'm like, okay, I'm just going to you know, celebrate my uh, you know, title victory, historic title victory, by ordering a, a Domino's pizza, which I do. About 20 minutes later, I get a call. Uh, your pizza's here. Well, bring it up to my room. I'm sorry, we can't do that. Well, why not? We're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to get on the elevator and come up through. No, we're not allowed. You think I'm going to kidnap you and make a human centipede out of you or something? Like, all right. I go downstairs. I get my pizza. I go back up to my room and it's locked. And I realize I've locked my keys in the room. All right. Go back downstairs again. Go up to the guy at the front desk who I'll never forget. His name was Regis J. O'Rourke Jr. Regis J. O'Rourke Jr. Not only was his name Regis J. O'Rourke, but there was another one. Some dad actually gave his kid the same name. Like, come on, dad. So anyway, Regis says, uh, I go, hi, I left my key in the room. He's like, um, do you have ID? 
I was like, I was just down here like 20 minutes ago, and you checked me in. Remember? I'm the guy who missed the restaurant by one minute. I'm sorry, sir. I need ID. Well, um, my ID is in my room, and I can't go get it because I'm locked out. Can you give me a key? I'm sorry I can't do that unless you have ID. It's back and forth. Finally, Regis, worst name ever. Sorry, Mr. Philbin. If I ever come back in another life and I'm named Regis, I'm changing my name, okay? Just want to get that clear. Go up to my room. He's got the pass key. He goes, you have to just explain what's inside the room. I said, there's a suitcase and two big championship belts because I'm the undisputed champion. I won it tonight. Now I'm getting mad. I'm like the king of the castle, and he's treating me like the dirty rascal. I'm the king of the castle, and you're the dirty rascal. He opens the door. He goes inside. He won't let me go in. And he's like, yes, you're right. There are two titles inside. You can go in. I'm like, I know. I told you, Regis. And Regis leaves and closes the door, and I sit down on my bed and eat cold pizza looking at my two title belts. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is how I celebrated my first night as the first ever undisputed champion. Yeah, no hookers and blow for for Y2J. Only cold pizza and Regis J. O'Rourke Jr. So hopefully Randy Orton's first night as undisputed champion was much better than mine. All right, we got Scott Ian coming up, but before we get him here... The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Welcome to Talk is Jericho. Here with me in the studio across the desk. The man with the beard, Baldini himself. Scott Ian is here. How you doing, man? Good. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm glad you're able to come in. First, the best name ever is Baldini. Uh, Explain where that came from. Baldini was a nickname that Dimebag Daryl started calling me at some point in the 90s. Uh, And then I I finally asked him, besides the obvious that I'm bald, (laughs) um, but just where where did Baldini come from? And... uh, he actually said there was a store in Manhattan. He said, we were driving down some street in Manhattan one day on, a, on the tour bus, and I, I see the name, name of some store, Dino Baldini, men's clothing. And he goes, Baldini, that's Scott. That's Scott. Baldini, <laughs> that's Scott Ian's store. Like, right. So it was anything from Baldini to Dino Baldini to Jew Baldini. <laughs> but it was always something Baldini basically became my name forever. Well, it's great, um, and it's fun because you uh... – Reached out to me a couple weeks ago and, and mentioned that you're doing your spoken word shows, or sorry, talking. Is it what are we speaking, speaking words? words. Sorry, because and I call them my talking shows. Yeah, because yeah. you don't like spoken word. The name spoken word. I I don't have a problem with it. It just it, in context with what I'm doing, it makes no sense at all. Because if you if you think of spoken word, it's usually some type of a reading having to do with poetry <laughs> uh, or something. And I'm just swearing a lot and <laughs> yeah. telling about, you know, a lot of drunken stories over the last 35 years. Well, it's cool. So you've done quite a few of these speaking words shows. 
it started, I think, in England where we have the same booking agent. He, he, uh, Dan DeVita put you and I and Duff McKagan right. um, doing like a spoken word series and then kind of took off from there to where we were in Australia last year and did them together. Mm-hmm. It was like Jericho versus Ian, you know, speaking words. And that was really cool. And then you've done a whole tour in the UK. Right. And now you're doing one in the States, which starts February 20th in Chicago at the main stage. So you've really taken to this. What is it that you like about doing these shows? And like, how has it become such a, a regular gig for you? The initial rush I felt from the first show I did in London, from mm-hmm. that, you know, that rock stars say the funniest things <laughs> yeah. thing that we That's did. That's what they called it, yeah. Having gone into that, Basically, shitting my pants uh, because when Dan actually called me and and said, "Hey, we've I've got a promoter over here who wants to bring you over to do a solo gig," and I'm like, "Well, I don't do that." I don't. <laughs> yeah, with an acoustic guitar. And he's like, or no, idiot! It's you talking, telling stories. I was like, "Oh yeah, I'm in." Mm-hmm. I just said yes without giving it any thought because it is something I wanted to do and something I've always felt like, okay, I would love to try this just to see if if it's cool if I can do it. But I never really was proactive about making it happen. And right. uh, so then it falls into my lap. So I said yes, especially knowing that I had almost five months or something to prepare. So I had this big scheme that I was going to write my set like a total professional. Like all my comedy friends, they write their jokes, you know. Yeah. So I'm going to write my show. I'm going to spend months putting it together. I'm going to invite a lot of my comedy friends like Brian Posehn and Patton Oswalt and Invite them to my house, do the show for them, ask them to give me notes. (laughs) Really? Like really, really, you know, really put this thing together like a pro. Mm -hmm. And I did none of that. I didn't do anything. And it's the night before the show in London. I'm in my hotel room with with Pearl, my wife. And and I'm about to call our agent, Dan, and tell him I'm canceling because I have the flu. And there's just no way I can do this. I was sweating. I was so nervous. And... uh, and Pearl said, don't call him and cancel. That's, that's ridiculous. Like, you've been telling these stories for years. These, you are these stories. All you're going to be doing tomorrow night is you're going to be in a bar talking to people, people who actually want to hear what you have to say. You're not just out with your friends bugging them with your stories. <laughs> like, people are coming to see you talk. They're paying money to see you. And, I, I mean, it was great advice. It really was great advice. But I was still nervous just – the idea of standing on a stage doing that, like thinking I've got to entertain these people. I don't have a guitar. I don't have my band. It's yeah. just me. Yeah, this works with my friends, but is it going to work in front of an audience? And uh, the first few minutes of that show, I was visibly shaking. Like my hand was shaking holding the microphone and shaking holding my iPhone because I, t- I, I, I opened the show reading that story from Anthony Kiedis's book. And I'm like... Both my hands are shaking, and I'm just like, Jesus. You've played thousands of gigs in front yeah. of hundreds of thousands of people. They must think I, I have uh, you know, Parkinson's or something. <laughs> yeah. and, and then after I got my first laugh at the end of that story, and I, you know, I, hey, it's not about me you know, and all this, and I get a big laugh, and, uh, and then I totally calmed down, and I got into a groove. And at the end of that night, two hours later, I'm in the dressing room with this big, goofy smile on my face asking our agent, how do I do more of this? I can't mm-hmm. wait to do this again. And that's where the whole tour came out of. And and uh, and I still get that same rush from doing it now. And now the show has definitely evolved after doing a whole tour, you know, five, six shows into it, doing it every night. That's when I really kind of, I feel like I learned sure. how to do it and how to really tell a story in front of an audience. And uh, 
So now I just feel really good about it, and it's just exciting for me to go do more. Well, it's like you said, the more you do, to you kind of hone the set list. You, know, you get rid uh-huh. of the stories that didn't work and, and streamline the ones that do. Because right. I remember the first one I did, I was out there for like two and a half hours, and DeVita's in the front row like, giving me the rap sign, like, okay, enough, enough. And I was like, it's <laughs> over already? But yeah, and you realize it's maybe a little bit too long to do that. But it's really cool. I mean, what kind of stories are you telling um, for, for, for the people that haven't seen the show? You know, I tried to – well, what I did was I made a list basically because a couple of years ago I started writing stories down from my life. Mm-hmm. Not even with the intent of doing a book at the at the time. The impetus for that was because I was starting to forget. Mm. Like I noticed just because age I guess or whatever yeah. and then Head have, banging. having a son and that just taking up so much of your brain and nothing compared to what it – you know, for Pearl as a mom but even for me – it, you know, it does eat your brain up a lot of space, you know, when you have another human now. Yeah, to, eating up a lot of data in your, yeah, your brain's so, computer. But I did notice it was taking me a long time to recall stuff. Like, mm-hmm. And I, I started to become a real slave to Google about things and like literally having to check things on Google about my own life. And that's kind of scary <laughs> when that starts to happen. Like, wait, when did I do this? And what happened? And I'm like, Isn't oh, it crazy when, when a fan will come up to you and say, you know, remember when you did this or something and you don't have any recollection? Uh, of course. Now, remember that show you did yeah. in, in Rochester where you jumped off the stage and you're like, uh, yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah, nothing, right? So I started writing things down. And in the process of writing down a lot of these stories, that's what made me think, like, wow, these would be great to share with people, whether it was on stage telling them or in a book form. But mm-hmm. I, I kind of just decided going into it the first time, I, I just would pick what I felt were the best ones, whether, you know, people ask me all the time because I did know Daryl for so many years. And so I get asked that a lot. Like, what's your favorite Daryl story or what was your favorite experience? So I kind of picked my favorite experience, mm-hmm. not necessarily the best story, um, you know, because it was probably like a, something that took 30 seconds, like some stupid thing of him, you know, paying someone a hundred dollars to pick up a cigarette butt off the floor of a gig after the show you know with their tongue and (laughs) pick up as many as you can i'll give you a hundred bucks a butt you know and like and then this this kid was like out on the tour working for cold chamber probably picked up 50 cigarettes in his mouth you know and he made five grand you know (laughs) so i mean things like that but for me it was more about an experience that's twofold where it was a a joke that he played on me and then I got revenge and that's kind of become my centerpiece I feel like of my show at at this point and uh, I've got a story that I tell about my first time ever meeting Lemmy because it goes so far beyond me just meeting Lemmy but like how two days later I was in Munich with a pants full of poo fighting off a Nazi doctor. I mean, that's, <laughs> I'm not making that up. That's what happened. You mentioned uh, a dime bag. Let's talk about him for a bit. What kind of a guy was he for? I mean, people still want to know so much about him. It's been almost 10 years since, since he passed. Obviously, super funny guy, great to the fans. You know, t- tell us a little bit about him. He was one of those people that was truly a force of nature. You know, there's so many cliches you could use for, for somebody but he really was. He was unlike anyone I had ever met before or since. I've mm-hmm. never met anyone even close to what that guy was as a human walking this planet. Like, he truly was just a force of nature. Everything, everything he did in life was just not necessarily about keeping the party going, but it, was, it always came from, for me at least, you know, as someone who knew the guy and also as an outsider looking in, it, it, it just came from a place of just – 
it's got to be fun or what's the point? Mm. Like he truly lived by that. He did not care about the money in any sense of the word. Sure, money certainly fueled a lot of the shenanigans. But at the same time, you know, he always said, I'm the original jackass. Because when like that TV show (laughs) Jackass got big and Daryl's, I mean, I remember him being pissed off one night. We're all drunk on the bus and. He's like, I'm the original, with no irony at all, I'm the original jackass. Like, <laughs> you know, give me those budgets and give me those lawyers and I'll show them, you know. He would just do anything. He would do it, like, and he was doing it with no money mm-hmm. and no lawyers and no MTV. And even before they put it on home videos and, you know, and Like, what kind of stuff would he video. do? Well, everything. For crashing cars into houses. Yeah. I mean, what? you know, I mean, anything. You've seen, you've seen the home videos, so you know. Yes. And, you know, they were doing that stuff just because, hey... We're a little bit. We drank a few black tooths. What can we do tonight? I've always said this. Whatever he did on Monday, he then had to double down on Tuesday and triple down on Wednesday, and, <laughs> and so on and so on. And that was like the snowball rolling downhill of 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 his life. Right? You know, like literally, it, it, it was like that. It was like we already did that, and that that's how it was being around him. Uh, I could only take it in small doses. It's not something I could have gotcha. really think that I could have been a part of for weeks and weeks and weeks on end it definitely takes it would its kill toll you, on yeah. you yeah it would have killed me <laughs> i am definitely a lesser man than he was when it comes to that kind of a lifestyle there's no way uh, i couldn't hang the, the closest i ever came to hanging was when we toured with them for two months uh, end of 97 and, and beginning in 98 and i committed you know i i truly committed myself like all in i, I said i'm going all in i'm gonna drink I'm going to do everything because I'm here. I'm here. Yeah. I'm not going to hide from it. I'm I'm going to embrace it. And I did. And for those two months, uh, it was insane. I mean, I, I was a mess afterwards. <laughs> you came home looking 10 years oh, older. Forget it. I mean, forget <laughs> it. I, I mean, I did. I, I don't think I drank for a solid month. I mean, after that, I mean, not a shot or beer, nothing. And, just, what, and the famous black tooth grin, explain what that was. That was their drink. Uh, that was Daryl's shot, whether it was Seagram's and a splash of Coke or Crown Royal and a splash of Coke. Um, that was, so that was whiskey and a splash of Coke, yeah, whiskey basically. and a splash of Coke. I had never drank a whiskey in my life until my first black tooth grin. For me, whiskey was this smell that came out of the liquor cabinet at my grandpa's house. <laughs> like it was, Oh God, who would ever even think of drinking something that even smells like that? And my first black tooth, my first ever whiskey was my first black tooth. And what you realize quickly is, wow, this, there's a lot of sugar in this. Yes. Like it goes, well, that's what gets you hung over. Yeah. Oh, of course. But it also makes it, it really fat. easy to drink, <laughs> yeah, too. Yeah. And uh, I was like, wow, well, that was easy. That's whiskey. Mm-hmm. Uh, wow, I could drink a lot of those. And, and I did. And, uh, and then soon realized, you know, there's probably better whiskey out there. Because at that time in my life, I drank a lot of beer and a lot of wine. And I was a bit of a snob when it came to beer and wine. And... So I figured, well, why not become a whiskey snob, too? So I immediately started finding out about, like, you know, small batch bourbons and things like that. And and, uh, so I would show up at a show or hanging out with Daryl with, like, a bottle of Maker's Mark or something. You know, back in the 90s before anyone even knew what Maker's Mark was. And, uh, well, outside of, let's say, you know, Tennessee, of course. (laughs) And... uh, he would, I would say, you should try this whiskey. This is really good. And he would try it. And he's like, oh, God, that tastes like burnt wood or something. And that was his thing. He liked the sugar. That was part of it. I didn't like the sugar. He wanted the cheap stuff. But he made a mental note after that. So anytime I would show up at a show or if we were hanging out somewhere, he would be like, Baldini, your fish is under the table. And I'd 
pull back the like tablecloth and look under the table, and there'd be like a bottle of Maker's That's cool. or a, a bottle of Woodford or some kind of good bourbon under the table that he would like just keep hidden from me because he knew I didn't want to drink yeah, 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 yeah. stuff. It's cool. Whenever I hang out with Vinny, he's always got a bottle of Grey Goose for me. Yeah. Those guys don't forget. You the know? consummate hosts. Yeah, absolutely. That, and that's why I said it always comes from a place of just wanting to have fun. Mm-hmm. And they want to make sure everyone around them is having fun as well. And Daryl was, he was the consummate host. He couldn't have a good time until he knew that everyone in the room with him was on that same plateau. Yeah. It's interesting, you know, you're talking about 30 years of being in, in heavy metal. You guys just uh, you just had your 30th anniversary. You just had your 50th birthday, by the way, and the party, that I read the party on your website. That was cr- f- Tell us about that. Well, which one what had f- four parties? Oh, was- <laughs> <laughs> and the one that Pearl had all, like the kind of the all-star jam set up for you. Yeah, my wife, my wife really did it up for me. I, I didn't just have a 50th birthday. I had basically a birthday month. <laughs> my birthday is actually December 31st. So we already knew what we were doing for that. We had a, a dinner for with a bunch of friends at a, a restaurant in town here in, in like a private room. And, and uh, I took everyone out. So don't ever say Jews are cheap. <laughs> the one time in 50 years. <laughs> um, when you turn 100, it'll be the second time. It was a Mario Battaglia restaurant too, so that ain't cheap. Um, yeah, the first party, uh, she threw like a big bash for me because it, it was obviously we couldn't invite a hundred and something people to dinner. So, uh, yeah, it was this thing at a place called the Largo here in town, which is basically a comedy club, but it's not set up like a club. It's like a small theater with a stage and seats. And I didn't know anything. Mm-hmm. All I this knew was something surprise, was yeah. going on that night, December 9th. I knew something was happening. My buddy Eric was driving me to the thing. She was already there. I just knew something was going on, but I had no idea to the extent of what she had gone through. And I show up to the Largo, which is one of my favorite places ever. It's a, a, a club I've been going to since the late 90s to see comedy because I mm. love stand-up. And uh, um, so I'm like, wow, we're having some, something at the Largo. I, and I just figured, well, we're just going to the bar here and maybe having a party in the bar because the bar used to be a thing called the Coronet, and that was my favorite bar in L.A. for years. And it yeah. was like... Carl and I, that was that was our bar for years. And I'm like, oh, cool, old school. We're going to, like, throw a party at the Carnet. And then I walk in and, like, I go into the theater part and it's packed with people. And then it's a full-on comedy show with Brian Posehn hosting. And she's got, well, besides Brian, Patton Oswalt and Sarah Silverman and uh, Brendan Small and this guy Ron Funches, who I had never heard of or seen before but was unbelievably funny. So full on comedy, full show comedy show with all these all these people like doing sets basically for my birthday. And it wasn't a roast either. They were like like yeah. Sarah Sarah was trying out all new material, which was pretty amazing to get her to see all at new your stuff birthday at my birthday. And then there's a jam after. Yes, there was a, a big jam that she put together. And highlights of that were having Doug Pinnock from King's X sing Goldilocks to me. Wow. Which is like my favorite King's X song. <laughs> so I got serenaded by Doug. <laughs> Um, which was pretty insane. Like I like chills, just like oh my god, like this is this is insanity. And uh, and then yeah, you know, uh, put together a, a band of friends and you know people that maybe you know people will would know. But uh, it was insane. And then it was like an all star Kiss Jam and Thin Lizzy, just, and, and everybody was just showing up one guy after another, a new singer every time that you didn't know was there. Yeah, like John Bush actually got up and uh, 
they did uh, ACDC Down Payment Blues, which is my favorite ACDC song. So I mean, a, she, she put some thought into it. It was a playlist of your favorite songs yes. done live. Yeah, and they did Down Payment Blues with, like, you know, John Bush singing and Brendan Small on guitar. And, uh, um, I mean, the house band was, like, friends of ours and uh, pretty much, well, with her guy Jim Wilson on guitar and vocals yeah, yeah. and our friend Zach. And it was just an insane night. Well, And, and the thing is, too, Pearl, uh, you've been married to for, for a while now, Pearl's dad, your father-in-law, is actually Meatloaf. Yes. How is it having Meatloaf as your father-in-law? Dude, we every, <laughs> every, every day, every time we're together, we get together and we just jam the whole Bad Out of Hell record. I put on the guitar. <laughs> He's got the scarf and the tuxedo yeah, right. shirt. And we just, we just throw a concert in the living room. Nonstop. That's all <laughs> every, you ever talk about. Every time. I, sometimes I think that's what people think. Of course. Because yeah. they, they always ask that question with that look, like, what's it like having meatloaf? And that's, I'm like, dude, it's crazy, dude. We've totally jammed <laughs> paradise over and over again. <laughs> but, I mean, do you walk in there and he's, like, got his feet up on the couch and tells you to take your, you know, take your jacket off? Or, like, does he, is he, like, a typical <laughs> father-in-law? Or is he cool? Or does he ever He's totally cool. He's totally cool. Um, he's way into sports. He's mm-hmm. a big sports guy, football and baseball. And, and uh um, so I'm excited he's coming over. We're like already planning on like what what cold cuts we're gonna get, and I'm gonna make turkey chili and like all kinds of stuff, and we're gonna have a spread laid out, and inviting some friends over that we know he he gets along with, so everyone can hang out. And yeah, we, we you know when we first met, when Pearl and I first started dating back in 2000, it was definitely weird back then. A, it was weird for me because I saw Meatloaf in nineteen seventy. That's what I mean. Like, would you ever guess that someday he's going to be your father? No. Like, right. Who does? No. I mean, I saw him in 1978 on Bad Out of Hell. My dad took my brother and I to the show at the Calderon Concert Hall <laughs> wow. uh, on Long Island. Uh, it was, you know, a small theater, like mm-hmm. 2000. So we were fans since, you know, I've been a fan since I was a kid. So, you know, cut to so many years later, I'm now dating his daughter. And it's kind of one of those things that it's hard to get your head around. And uh, and the first time she had actually moved back into the house with her mom and dad around that time, she had gone through a, a, just a, a, you know, a divorce and, and uh, gotten rid of the house. And so she was moved back in with her mom and her dad. And so that's where she was staying at their, their <laughs> insane house in Brentwood. And... Uh, so I remember going over there the first time, like to pick her up at that house, and uh, knowing that her dad was going to be there, and it's like, <laughs> and you're like, you know, 35 years old, rock and roll yeah. hero, and I'm me, bald with tattoos <laughs> yeah. and a weird beard, and like, you know, walking into, you know, and look, I know a thing or two about pecking orders, and I understand I'm walking into Meatloaf's house. This is his daughter I'm taking out. Yes. Like, I, like he is the boss. Yeah, I am like some weirdo walking in to date his daughter so you know i'm just straight up like i'm gonna be cool and all that and i basically like i think he kind of nodded at me as he walked from one room to the other like that's about all i got on that first time and it's like oh my dad likes you i'm like oh really like like (laughs) really likes me what do you say but the the first few months it was definitely a weird scene because you know, unbeknownst to me at the time, her parents were going through their own issues mm-hmm. and about to split up. So it was just a weird scene for me to be walking into anyway. So um, there were a couple of occasions like where he threw of us threw us out of the house like on Christmas Eve, you know, because <laughs> for some reason he thought like we were making out on the couch. We weren't. We were laying on the couch on Christmas Eve this watching a movie. Though you're a grown man. I love this. Yeah, and... 
And I'm and like literally like called and Pearl answered the phone. It was like get out of the house and oh, we we're like, what did we do? And we were back over there the next morning for Christmas and it was all fine. But it was just because it was just a bad time I got for you. him. No, it's just it's it's funny to hear you know the story of you getting admonished as a grown yeah, man. Yeah, and with, I'm just like with platinum records on yeah, the wall. But I'm just like I want Meatloaf to like me, you know. <laughs> but then a few months later, we had a great night out at of uh, at all things a. Uh, when they were still called Metal Shop, which of course Steel became Steel Panther, yeah, and this was when they were still at the Viper Room, and Meatloaf was there, and we were the, we ended up coming to the show, and he got on stage, and we had a really really great night, and I actually took his keys and drove him home that night, and I feel like from that night on we were bros, like You're something one of the boys, yeah. something changed that night, and then everything's been great ever. Like I mean, this is in two thousand, this yeah, is fourteen cool. years ago. And like, if anybody's gonna understand what it's like to be you know a rock guy, it'd be Meatloaf. So I'm sure that kind of helps as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. And he's been nothing but supportive of you know of me and Pearl, and uh, like he's he's a great guy. The longest field goal ever attempted is seventy six yards. The longest field goal ever missed, also seventy six yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. This is Talk is Jericho. Welcome back to Talk is Jericho. I got Scotty in here in the studio. He's doing a spoken word talking show, and it starts on February 20th in Chicago, Detroit, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Toronto, Kingston, Ontario, Ottawa, Ontario, Annapolis, Maryland, Philadelphia, Boston, New York, New York, Syracuse, West Warwick, Rhode Island, Portland, Maine. Go to Scott Ian's website to find out all the dates. It's a really entertaining show. Scott-Ian. Scott-Ian. Exactly, because you're so dashing. Yes. Yes. With 30 years of, of, of doing this, how do you decide what, 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 uh, what stories you tell at the Speaking Words show? It's tough. You know, uh, like I said earlier, I, making that list of stories kind of just so I don't forget them, yeah. you know, putting them in a book. So it'll be like one day, hey, kids, you know, let me tell you a story. Uh, I have a lot of material I mean, like you said, a lot of those shows on my first run in the UK, I was doing close to three hours. Wow. And it felt like 30 minutes to, mm-hmm. to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's the tip of the iceberg. So it, it is tough. I mean, if if I stood on stage and told all the stories that I've kind of documented at this point, it, I could, it would be 10 hours of talking. So, yeah, it's hard. I, I, I What I started doing was within the first 10, 15 minutes of the show – it would be pretty easy for me to kind of gauge the room mm-hmm. and I would base it on kind of how drunk they were. <laughs> and that would kind of tell me which kind of stories are going to work better. You know, which is smart. That's what you have to do. Yeah. yeah. Just, and I mean, we're talking about the UK. So most of the time the room was pretty drunk. They're getting there drunk. Yeah. So, but some places like Belfast and Dublin, uh, you know, in uh, Ireland, uh, some places drunker than others at the beginning of the show. And nothing wrong with that, but yeah. it just kind of helps me know what kind of stories are going to work better. Generally, shorter stories mm-hmm, and mm. about drinking <laughs> are going to work in front of a crowd like that, rather than maybe a longer story that maybe has a little bit more of a convoluted, unique to follow me on to, this yeah. one yeah. kind of path. And uh, so, you know, you just kind of figure it out I, in the first 15 minutes. I did do one show 
so far besides UK and Australia. Uh, I did a German date last summer on the at Wacken. on Wacken. How was that in front of the German crowd? Did they understand you? They did, and it wasn't even a case of just German. You know, you've got people from That's all true. over the world, yeah. but still. Everyone coming there. I mean, I would say if you looked at 80,000 people at that festival, easily 80% of that is non-English speaking as their first language. Yeah, it's very European. But also, most people get it. They understand enough English, especially people coming to metal uh, metal festivals. So, you know, it's not like I was going to be walking up there uh, and, you know, and like talking to a brick wall of just like not understanding me. But still, you know... There is a there's a lot of slang or this or that, and I don't know how it's going to work. But you know, I just decided I'm not going to change what I do. I'm going to throw it all out the window, and I'm just going to do what I do. I'm going to stop thinking about the language barrier and just yeah. get, look. Rollins has been coming to Germany for years and doing this, and he's not talking in German. So I just did what I did, and it was only an hour set, which of course, in one way, made it easier. In another way, made it harder for me because what do you well, do? What do yeah. I do for an hour? You know, so I literally just picked. Two stories that I thought would work, one of which was the Lemmy story, which I have illustrations for that I show on yeah, the Scott screen. Scott puts and up pictures behind him when he does this, the so shows. So I did it for an hour, and went, it went over great in a tent sandwiched between two black metal bands. It actually, <laughs> it actually went over great, and uh, to the point now where I think uh, next summer I'm looking to do that on days off. I'm hoping that uh, uh, my agent will be able to get me some speaking gigs right. no matter where I am in Europe. Mm-hmm. It, that was cool when we did that last year at Soundwave on our days off. We had a couple of them where we both did an hour and then closed the show telling yeah. telling a story, like a, which I thought was cool. It was funny, though. The first one we did was – I can't was it Sydney? Sydney first. Nice yeah. theater. Oh, it was great. great. Perfect venue. Perfect venue. And then the second night we show up in Melbourne and it's like we were walking up these stairs to basically a pub. And it's like a, a small pub. This table. This, this <laughs> table and a long hallway and a little wee stage that was about That's what three I mean. inches like off the this stage. This table yeah, was the stage. Was the stage. And windows everywhere. So the lights were like, you know, it was sunny inside. Yeah. And you have, you know, visuals and audio visuals. And I have like a thing at the beginning. And so we were like kind of freaking out like this. What are we going to do? We want to talk to the manager and blah, blah, blah. We were going to move to the roof and we were going to try and bribe somebody downstairs. That's right. They actually offered, there was a proper venue in the building. Yeah. And there was some band playing there, and they the Soundwave people actually offered them a slot on Soundwave. Yes. Like, next next Soundwave, we will offer you a slot on the whole tour if you will just move. Yeah. And they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't move. <laughs> they would not. Uh, they were playing that show that night no matter what. So we ended up just waiting until about you know 11 o'clock or something like that yeah. where it was dark. And I mean, we had a sold-out gig. We did. Yeah. A sold-out gig. I remember Duff McKagan in the front row. Yeah, and right there. Carrie King standing on the side. And this place was like a closet. But it was good, though, because you know the, the, the show was good. We told some great stories. But it was funny to get up there and tell, tell the Axl Rose story yes. at the end. And, and this story is, for, for, I don't know if anybody's heard it before, but Scott and I were doing Eddie Trunk with Sebastian. Sebastian Bach and that's about it, the three of us. Mm-hmm. And you guys were talking about the the show that you did where you formed a band, D- Democracy. Yes, uh, uh, super group. Super group. Savage Animal. Yeah. <laughs> so anyways, so we're sitting there and then uh, Sebastian's like, oh my God, I just got a text from Axl Rose, man. And everyone's like, ooh, Axl Rose, because I guess Axl was, was listening to our show. Yeah, he was in New York rehearsing. Rehearsing. Yeah. So uh, Baz calls him and then tries to put the phone up to the to the microphone 
<laughs> and Eddie's like, you can't do that. Have him call in. So Axel calls in. They talk for a few minutes. And then uh, and Eddie's like, well, if you want to come in, you know, we're here. And, and, you know, hang up the phone. We're like, yeah, that was whatever. 20 minutes later, we yeah. get this, uh, he's here. He's Yeah, he's here. Like, who's here? Like, hey, Axel, Axel Rose. Yeah. What? <laughs> so uh, he's here. So we're kind of like, you know, you'd never seen four loudmouths with nothing to say suddenly. Like, we're just kind of like wondering what's going to happen. And the door opens and in comes this old lady. Yeah, that lady. Like, I don't know her name, but uh, I... I found her name is Beta. Beta. And she's Axel's spiritual advisor. Right, she kind of vibed us out, right, to see if it was a cool thing for him to come in the room. Yeah, to, to make sure that it was cool that he could come inside, and then she went outside and then gave him the, the thumbs up that these guys are nice yeah, guys. she walked out there, she's like, uh, they're all totally dorking out over the fact you're here, I think it's cool. <laughs> <laughs> so in comes Axel Rose, and he's like super like quiet and you know kind of shy, and, and no one knows what to say. Right, like we're, everyone's just kind of sitting around, like what? And then you know, I remember I mean, Eddie just says he doesn't didn't say this, but I totally remember him saying, "So will there ever be a reunion with Slash?" And I'm like, "You can't say that. This is awful. <laughs> this is like the worst conversation ever." So finally, it's like Axel, you got to answer the question that everybody has to ask when they're on when that has to answer when they're on the Trunk Show. Priest or Maiden? Right. And he's like, "Well." Um, I like Priest better, but the, the the first Maiden record is my favorite of all of them. And then suddenly the doors opened, yes. and it was like just a bunch of dudes talking about metal. But I remember us, uh, you and I sitting there, and I was I said, dude, this is like the biggest rock star in the world besides like Mick and, and Paul McCartney. And you're like, I know, this is so cool. It was great. Yeah, you know, because he was a hermit at the time. He just yep. came out of hiding for that show. So we finished our spoken word show by telling that that tale. It was a pretty cool. Uh, it was a pretty cool vibe. You know, you, know, you bring up Sebastian too, and it, it makes me think. My Daryl story that I tell, um, Sebastian is a part of it without actually. Well, I don't want to. I don't want to spoil it. Yes, but it's actually that story's coming out in my book. I've actually had that story kind of illustrated as well, and um, uh, and I know uh, Sebastian is aware of this story, whether he remembers or not. But back back in the day, after this story happened, and I know I am like kind of talking around the point here, but I because I can't, I don't want to spoil. Doesn't it. want to divulge the but, the, the punchline. But the story that I tell about Daryl is uh, Sebastian is very much involved in the story um, that Daryl basically plays this joke on me about. And when Sebastian found out about this after the fact, he wasn't thrilled with it. Although he wasn't happy that you told the story. No, he wasn't thrilled that Daryl told this story to oh, me and gotcha. the way he's portrayed <laughs> and. Uh, but he couldn't have been too upset because then on that tour with Pantera, they actually had uh, his band come out and open a week of the dates, Sebastian Bach, Anthrax, Pantera. And oh. they actually had him come out and play a bunch of shows. So he couldn't have been too bummed. Yeah, yes, but I just want people to know, like a lot of people around the world now have heard me tell this story. And I, I try and make it pretty clear every night that I love Sebastian Bach. He's, yeah, he's, he's a character, he's man. He's a friend of mine. Yeah. I, I consider the guy a friend. He's He's awesome. I've always loved him. He's an amazing singer, uh, and I'm just telling a story, you know, that <laughs> yeah. happened in my life of this 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 thing that Daryl did yes. to me. And of course, when I get to the end of it, and people realize the the joke, you know, then they realize, oh, okay, we get it. And so I just. Lest anyone think that uh, you know that no Sebastians yeah. were harmed in the making of this talk exactly. Talk to show. Do you have any? Do you ever tell any Cliff Burton stories? I do. I do have a. I Is there any you a, can tell for us right now? I'm a, I'm a Cliff Burton. Freak. Sure. I mean, 
you know, sure. I mean, because this one's this one's kind of out there. Um, you told some good ones at the Metallica 30 anniversary. Yeah, too, I mean yeah. that that one specifically. You know, because you guys spent a lot of time touring with Metallica at that point, so you spent a lot of time with with Cliff. We we spent, you know, look, those guys showed up in New York City, literally getting out of a U-Haul truck, for having driven across country from San Francisco to pull up to the music building in Jamaica, Queens, which was, you know, basically a squat that someone decided to rent the rooms out to uh, uh, bands on a monthly basis. But it worked out great because you could pay a couple hundred dollars a month and have 24 access to a rehearsal spot, even though it was in South Jamaica. Queens was one of the worst neighborhoods in New York. And, you know, you got a bunch of white metal dudes. <laughs> so it's, it's just the fact of the matter was it was just a really bad zone. But it was cheap. Mm-hmm. You know, it was you really could cheap. It. Yeah. So, uh, you know, and those guys pull up to this joint and they're like, oh, where are we staying? And I'm like, what? <laughs> I think. Ta-da. I don't know. Didn't you talk to Johnny Z? I, are you, do you have a hotel? Where, where are you staying? And it's like, you're staying here, you know. Wow. Um, yeah, it was horrible. It was Mustaine still with him at that point? With Dave. So we, we became fast friends. I mean, Johnny Z actually called me and said, Metallica is going to show up like tomorrow morning at some point. They should be getting into New York. Do you mind like being there so there's like a friendly face like they mm-hmm. know so somebody's there to meet them and so me and Danny Lilker like greeted those dudes when they pulled up and uh um so yeah um we became fast friends and you know people know the stories about us you know giving them a toaster oven and a refrigerator and uh food and bringing them to our houses to shower and and all wow. that kind of stuff um so yeah we knew each other from the start and Cliff you know he didn't look like us. Like James and Kirk and Lars, we all looked the same. We all wore the same tight jeans and high tops and leather jackets and motorhead shirts. I'm <laughs> Which still he's wearing, wearing now. Right now. But Cliff had bell bottoms. And and, and had uh, the long one-length hair, which long, nobody had yeah, at that time long either. Yeah, long one-length hair, bell-bottom jeans, boots, button-down flannel shirt, denim jacket with a Leonard Skinner pin on it. You wow. Know? And... and just like kind of like huh like he looked like the dudes that were older than me in high school back in the late 70s like like which is interesting even back in those days by wearing a leonard skinner pin on your jacket that could get you thrown out or beat up amongst metal kids yeah and even though i loved skinner i wasn't you couldn't you know, say it yeah I, I not even that i couldn't say it i was already kind of on to so much other stuff at that point and uh um like skinner to me was like ah, that's what i was listening to in 1977 you know but mm-hmm. uh Cliff was just on his own trip. Like, you know, he would sit around and listen to R.E.M., you know, back wow. in 1982. And uh, so, yeah, he was on his own trip. But I I kind of gravitated towards him immediately of anyone in the band at that point in time. Like, uh, I became friends with him first, mostly, I think, just because he was just so different. And he was just such an individual. And mm-hmm. uh, so even before Kirk was in the band, I was kind of closest with Cliff hmm. uh, in those early days. And then when Kirk joined, it was the three of us. Just like Cliff was just such an individual. You know, that's the best thing I think I could say about any human. Yeah. Is that he was just a complete original, a complete individual. And I, I, I don't know what else you could say, I mean, other than musically too. I mean, he really was kind of the odd man out in that band, but gave them... Melody. Something, yeah, yeah, that his bass playing on those records gave them something that none of us had mm-hmm. back then. Mm-hmm. You know, That's right. Anthrax or Slayer or Megadeth or Cliff for me was kind of the soul of that band at that point in time. Hmm. You know, it just because he was so different. None of us had a dude like that <laughs> yeah. in our band, you know. 
and uh, such an original, such an individual, and uh, obviously such a huge part of their sound early on. And you played that last tour and that last show before he passed away in the bus crash, correct? Yeah, we were were on on that show. We were on tour together in in Europe in uh, September of 86 when when that happened. We had done the whole UK and then um, had moved uh, into Scandinavia and what had played, I think, Oslo and... And then Stockholm, and it was on the drive from Stockholm to Copenhagen is when the accident So when happened. did you guys find out? We found out in the morning. We had left the gig early the night before. Normally, every night we would just stay yeah. and watch Metallica and hang out and, and rage after the mm. show. And then we'd all get on our respective buses or, well, in our case, in the UK, in our crappy van and head to the next, <laughs> the next gig. But uh, we graduated to a bus when we got over to Europe. Mm-hmm. Because in the UK, the van, the drives were short. It was like, you know, even it's not like we had hotels. We were sleeping in the van. Oh, wow. But uh, uh, we, we had a bus when we got into Europe, which, you know, lasted all of two days. But we left early that night for some reason. I don't remember specifically why we were leaving early from Stockholm to get down to Copenhagen. But I remember saying goodbye to those guys before they went on stage because we weren't going to be there after. Yeah. And we're like, see you guys in Copenhagen, blah, blah, blah. Have a good show and all that. And. And uh, so we split, woke up the next morning, parked in front of the, a hotel in Copenhagen, and uh, or was it in front of the venue? No, I remember being at the hotel because I remember getting off the bus and walking into a hotel lobby, mm-hmm. and I saw our tour manager in there, and he was like talking to some guy, and walked up and just like, what you know, hey, what's the plan? What are we doing? You know, do yeah, we what's have a, the day? Do we have yeah. a day room or are we going to the venue? Like, what's happening? And and he said, this is so-and-so, the promoter of the, the show tonight. And then he told me, he was like, there was an accident last night. Metallica's bus crashed and and uh, Cliff Burton was killed in the accident. Oh, my gosh. Uh, you know, Lars was hurt and everyone else is kind of on their way here now. And But, but you know, Cliff died. And I'm kind of groggy and, you know, having just woken up. And I'm like, what? You know, what? Mm-hmm. You know, and he repeats himself and... And I said, no, no, no. There's no way. There's no way that that happened. Those guys probably got really puffed up last night and like too much somehow. And this is some kind of bullish because they can't make the show tonight for right, some reason. Right, right, there right. was no way Cliff was dead. Like any other thing seemed possible to me. Mm-hmm. As As outrageous as it would have been for them to make up a story like that to get out of a Just gig denial, or something. Denial, yeah. Yeah, there's just no way that there's no way. I mean, who thinks of a bus crashing? We not mm-hmm. in 1986. I had never heard of anything like that ever before, and nothing like that had ever happened. In my, no, yeah. in my life, I had never heard this. And it's my friend, and it's my friends. It just seems so unreal. And the guy's like, "I'm so sorry to have to tell you this." And I'm like, "How? I don't understand. Like, what? What happened? What happened? You know, like we don't know. The details are coming in. They think there was ice." Whatever, you know, but the bus went off the road, it turned over, and, and Cliff was killed. And you know, he didn't know any of the details. And, mm-hmm. and it was kind of too much to process. Yeah, yeah, I was sure. 22 years old, living the dream. Mm-hmm. And you think you're Superman. You really feel invincible out there. And then somebody tells you this, and it just seemed so unbelievable. And then, of course, you know, ev- the whole band, you know, at some point had come in and. and they got us a couple of rooms in the hotel that, uh, you know, and we just kind of sat there mm. <laughs> not talking for hours, you know, wondering what happened. Where's 
James and Lars and Kirk and are they okay? And where you know what happened? What happened? That's all we can. How could this be? How could it be? How could Cliff be dead? It was so unreal. And uh, later that night, Kirk and James uh, showed up at the hotel. They were brought down from wherever they were up in in Sweden still, and uh, you know not so good state. I yeah. mean, James was really, really, really kind of drunk and they had I think they had given him some sedatives to try and calm him down but it didn't really work and he was just kind of inconsolable unconsolable it's the same right I mean it was it was hard it was a mess and it would it would kind of turn into he would start flipping the puff out and I remember like Frankie and Charlie I think like taking him out of the room so he wouldn't smash things and like outside onto the street to just kind of get some air and walk him around and it was a bad yeah, scene. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, words really can't describe how dark it was. Yeah. <laughs> but when you're sitting, you know, there in a Copenhagen with two of your best friends at the time and having been in the middle of this tour that was literally the, the kickoff of kind of, you know, Metallica breaking. I mean, Master of Puppets tour sold out in Europe. And then the most devastating thing that could possibly happen, like losing your friend mm-hmm. in a bus accident. Um, it was really hard for anyone to process, certainly in the moment. And then those guys went home the next day. Kirk and James were... Lars was, I believe, it's, was in the hospital. I don't know where he went, but Kirk and James flew home back to California the next day. We were actually stuck, I mean, because the tour just came yeah, you're, yeah. to a halt. We didn't know how we were getting home. It took about two days of logistics and we didn't have money it, mm-hmm. you know and flights were already had been paid for and then now we had to like find a way to get how us much home longer was the tour supposed to we go had, like six more weeks oh wow we had only done so the uk yeah you're stuck and then we were doing all of europe you know there was like six weeks we had yeah. only done the first two weeks of an eight-week tour and uh so we finally made it home and um i immediately flew i think i got home to new york got home to my apartment took a shower repacked a bag went back to the airport and flew to San Francisco because I wanted to be there for the funeral a couple of days later. And I was staying with James at his apartment at the time and then just spent like three, four days hanging with those dudes. Mm -hmm. A lot of the time at Kirk's house, Kirk's mom's house, actually, uh, just hanging for days with them and their their friends out in in the Bay Area and just kind of being there with my bros, you know, trying to be supportive. And uh, it was nuts. It was nuts. But even, you know... Even in the midst of all that, never once did those guys ever think of stopping. Mm-hmm. You know, that was never a question. Like, is this the end of oh. Metallica? You know, I remember sitting around in Kirk's mom's kitchen having a beers with those guys and other friends from like other Bay Area bands. And those guys already thinking about, you know, who are they getting? what are we going to do and who would we get? And. You know, even us joking, like I remember saying, dude, obviously you're getting Gene Simmons to play bass in your <laughs> band now. Like, who else could possibly replace Cliff yeah. other than Gene Simmons or Kronos from Venom? That would be my second choice. <laughs> Same hair. Yeah. So, like, you know, I mean, there was never a question because everyone felt, and once again, using the phrase of it would be a cliche, but the last thing Cliff would have wanted would be for the music to stop. Mm-hmm. His life was music. Mm-hmm. So the last thing that dude would have wanted was for those guys to say, that's it, we're calling it a day, you know, we're going to move on and, of course, go on to own the planet. So, yeah. And deservedly so, if even just for what they had to go through right. in those, those, you know, in that moment. It's interesting how it's almost, it's parallel to what happened with Avenged Sevenfold, where it, one of the brothers 
dies mm-hmm. and then they go on to their biggest success ever after building it together. You know, I can see how that would be really hard to kind of but but I saw I saw Metallica in eighty six, November first. I just Googled it in Winnipeg. Wow. With Jason. So that was Yeah, six like weeks, yeah, maybe. soon after They're I right remember back, yeah. I actually remember finding out from Michael Lago, who was an A&R mm-hmm. guy back then. Uh, I actually remember finding out from him that it was Jason that got the gig. Oh. And this, you know, this is obviously pre-texting and yeah, iPhones and whatnot. And, yeah. So I was somewhere with Michael, and he had gotten a call, you know, that it was Jason Newstead from Flotsam and Jetsam. I was like, wow, you know, that kind of came out of left field. But I was like, wow, that's a, that's actually good a really mix, good yeah. choice, you know. Yeah. And then we were back on tour together in February of '87 making up some of the shows that got canceled and, and playing like a week or two weeks of shows together mm-hmm. in February of 87 back over in Europe. So they moved forward quickly. But that's, you have to. That that's, would yeah. be, you, you can't, you know, hey, who, no one would have blamed them if they would have decided, look, we're going to take a, a year to figure this out. Yeah. If that's what they needed to do, then that's what they would have had to have done. But they got back on the horse. You know? Well, and that's like you said, sometimes when you take the time away, it's almost, it's, it's death in the music industry, which is why I'm so happy for Anthrax. You guys are having a huge resurgence right now after basically being inactive for seven, eight years. Inactive recording-wise, but we were playing shows. Sure, still playing shows, but as far as actually the product and, and right. how, how big worship music has been for you guys, I mean, you've got to be happy about kind of the, the new life for the band over the last couple of years. It's so many factors, one of which is the fact that we made a new record, you know, we put out worship music in 2011 and we're in the days of a lot of people, it seems like don't give a crap anymore about bands making new music. You know, everyone says, oh, the Stones don't need to make another record. I'll just go see them. I only want to see the hits. Or you could even, you could put that same thing on us or Metallica or Slayer. ACDC. ACO. Yeah. People want to come and see you and play two hours of the <laughs> shit they know and they don't want to bother with new stuff. And, we know all of that, but this is what we do, and we love to yeah. make music. We You're love an to write songs, to, and, yeah. and we put out worship music in 2011 in the face of that, in the face of people not buying records anymore in general, and uh, on a planetary basis, it was accepted so well, and people really connected what we did, and the material instantly became stuff that meshed so well with the greatest yes. hits in the set and people wanting to hear that stuff and and it's not just me saying it this came from this it's came true. from our fans I'll vouch for you know? it I'll vouch I for mean that. people took to this record and it shows because it look it put us back on the map to a point like we hadn't been probably since 1993 with Sound of White Noise I agree. it really kind of put us back into a place that we hadn't been in a long time and um, we are nothing but thankful and respectful and you know full of love for the metal kids around the world you know who did this for us you know we felt like we made the right record we felt so strong about the record but it very easily could have just came out and nobody would have known about it Mm -hmm. It, that so easily could have happened and it didn't because people they really connected to the songs and uh we got to play 207 shows on the back of worship music and uh, uh go into writing this new record for the first time in forever I'm talking about for the first time in forever being able to go into a record on a positive. That's, that hasn't <laughs> That's happened great. to us yeah. in a million years. So the first time I could go into a record and actually say, wow, the songwriting's actually kind of going fast. And we're so happy in the room, and and that's because of the positivity of having just had a, an amazing run mm-hmm. on worship music. And 
all I can say is thank you. Thank you to the world out there for allowing this to happen to us in 2011. Well, and like you said, yeah, it's, it's been a great couple of years for Anthrax. The new record, I know you're leaving pretty soon to go work on some new stuff. And then you're leaving very soon as well to do your Speaking Words tour with Scott Ian. Go to his website, scott-ian.com, for the dates. And you got to check out the picture of demonic Scott engulfed in flames about to tell you stories about uh, Lemmy's underwear. It's a, it's a must. It's a great show. I had the pleasure of watching it a few times. It starts February 20th in Chicago, all the way through kind of the eastern states, up through Canada. Scott-Ian.com for the dates. Go check it out. Hear all the stories. Dude, great to have you here, man. Thank you. Thank re- you, Chris. really enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Say hi to your father-in-law for it. I will. <laughs> all right, cool conversation with Scott Ian. You got to go check out his Speaking Words tour if you are in the uh, the area where he's coming. Once again, go to scott-ian.com. The tour starts Thursday, February 20th in Chicago. And he's got a really cool thing going on. He wants to put out a DVD called Speaking Words in Glasgow. And he's putting it up on Pledge Music, which is kind of one of those sites where you can donate before the project is made to raise funds to, to, to be able to produce it. And you get, of course, you obviously get the DVD. But if you go to www.pledgemusic.com slash projects slash Scott Ian, you can find out how you can get involved and also all the awesome pledge bonuses you can get. You know, you pay 10 bucks to get the DVD. You pay 1000 bucks, you get an L.A. area vinyl shopping trip with Scott. You pay 2500 bucks, you get to go catch a Yankees game with Scott. Five grand, Scott will play on your band's next record. Twelve grand for Scott's custom zombie killer signed guitar, etc., etc. So if you're a Scott Ian fan, and who isn't, go to pledgemusic.com slash projects slash Scott Ian and help him out. Great guy. Great conversation. Also, another uh, huge supporter of Talk is Jericho and another good friend of mine, DDP, Diamond Dallas Page. We talk about his DDP yoga quite often. Go to ddpyoga.com and find out all about his yoga workshops in London that he's doing and in Manchester. He's got a lot of stuff coming up. He's going on a speaking word tour of his own that starts March 1st through 11, all through the UK, Wales, and Ireland. Go to ddpyoga.com and check it out if you live in the UK. And our show is doing amazing in the UK. It's been on the charts basically ever since we started. It's hard to believe it's only been only over a couple months. Thanks for all of you for joining in and helping us rock it with talk is Jericho. All right, time to open up the phone lines. Whenever it's time to ask some questions, I will post the phone number on the Twitter at Talk is Jericho. I know at first I was just answering questions that you were posting, but let's get you on the line and hear what you have to say uh, face-to-face, voice-to-voice. Time to take a couple calls. Here is your chance to ask whatever's on your mind. We got Philip from New Jersey right here. What's going on, Philip? Not much. Uh, I just want to know, uh, that, I remember one time watching Raw, you did the turnbuckle from the second rope and the turnbuckle broke. Do you remember that? Oh, you mean the moon salt from the lion salt from the second the lion rope? Salt, yeah, yeah, I do remember that. Um, I believe it was in. I think it was even a pay per view in Fort Lauderdale. And I think it was me and Christian against Booker T and Goldust, and I went for the second rope moon salt, and the rope just disintegrated. 
um, and kind of left me <laughs> kind of hanging. But I think I was able to. I think I had just jumped on it and it blew up, so it didn't exactly uh, cause me to, to land on my head or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. W- w- yeah, and there was. If you're asking me to tell you the experience of it, there was another time in Paintsville, Kentucky, back in Smoky Mountain Wrestling when I went to do it, and I'd actually pushed back and the turnbuckle broke, and I kind of flipped backward and landed on my back. So I mean, it, obviously, very dangerous. Um, but the the time in Fort Lauderdale with Goldust, I remember we had to wrestle the rest of the match with just the first rope and a third rope. There was no <laughs> second rope, and the, something in the finish involved going to the top rope, and we had to kind of like stand on the first rope and like hop up to the third rope to try and get there because we still had about ten minutes left of the match. <laughs> so uh, yeah, there you go, man. It's an interesting. Right. It's, it's scary, but you got to be careful. But thanks, uh, thanks for the call, Philip. Oh, no problem. Thanks for all the podcasts. I listen all, all the time when I'm on my way to school. I appreciate that, man. Keep it up, my friend. Uh, you too. Have a great day. Cheers. All right. We got Stephanie on the line from uh, from Ohio. Stephanie from Ohio is here. Hello, Stephanie. Hello. Hello. Thank you. I'm awesome. How are you doing? What's your question? I'm pretty good. Um, my question is for you, Chris. Who is your least favorite band and why? My least favorite band? Yes. Hmm. I can't really say if I have a least favorite band. I mean, there's some bands that I don't really like listening to, um, so I'll just turn the channel or turn the station. But any band that actually gets together and plays their, you know, plays some tunes and, and creates some kind of joy for somebody, I guess uh, is is all cool with me. I'm not a big fan of like hardcore gangster rap. Um, it, I just find it. I just find the lyrics kind of stupid, and it just gets on my nerves. So maybe yeah. least, least favorite genre would probably be like you know, that that real dirty hardcore, you know, uh, rap type stuff. But if a band is picking up a guitar and playing, then you know, good for them. Although I'm not a fan of Jack Johnson, he gets on my nerves. But so so Jack's uh, anytime Jack comes on, I'm turning the channel. How about you? What's your least favorite band? Usually, I get crap for this, so I'm gonna. Just tell you right now, Nirvana. I hate Nirvana. All right. Well, they're going in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame this year, so so somebody must like them. Yeah, like I told everybody, like the only good thing that came out of Nirvana was Dave Grohl. Well, Dave is definitely, uh, he's all over the place, and Foo Fighters are amazing. So I think as you grow older, you might appreciate Nirvana a little bit more. I, I wasn't a big fan of them either when they first came out. But over I mean, the over the years, I actually got into him and, and realized that there's a lot of genius there with Kurt Cobain. So, but thanks yeah. for calling, Stephanie. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the show. Thanks, Chris. Awesome. All right, and we got Mark from Chicago. What's going on, Mark? Hey, Chris. I was just wondering. I enjoyed your talk with uh, Chavo Guerrero and all the Eddie Guerrero talks. But what's your views with Vicky Guerrero? I feel like she gets more heat than anyone else, and she's underrated. I think, um, first of all, I, I agree with you. I, I think that Vicky has been there for so long now, probably seven or eight years, and she's so good at what she does that people forget how good she is and kind of take it for granted that you know, whenever she goes up to the ring, you can't even hear her talk because yeah. people are booing so loudly. And you got to remember, she is not a, a, a trained performer. She never was. I mean, I, I knew her as Eddie's wife. And I think when Eddie passed away, uh, Vince gave her a job just as a good faith gesture because he loved Eddie so much and probably didn't really know what to expect with Vicky. But she took to it, man, uh, quicker than almost anybody had ever seen as far as understanding her role, uh, understanding what to do to get heat. 
and remember, this is a, a woman, and you know they're calling her fat, they're calling her ugly, they're calling her you know all of these horrible names, and she took it all in stride. I don't know too many females that would go on TV and allow people uh, to talk to them that way. But she has done a, a tremendous job, and I agree with you. I think she is very underrated as just a pure heat-getting heel. Yeah, like you said, you can't even hear her in the arenas. You know, on TV you can, but yeah, yeah I think she's underrated. No, when you're in the ring with her, I mean, it's it, the, the reaction is monstrous. And it's every time, and it doesn't matter what she's doing. So, uh, you know, once again, just a natural performer in that fine Guerrero tradition. So uh, I appreciate your call, Mark. Thanks for listening to the show. Yeah, it's an honor talking to you. Keep All right, man. Talk to you soon. Thanks. All right. Well, that's uh, awesome to talk to you guys. We're going to do this every single week, so you never know when you're going to get your chance to call through to Talk is Jericho. Check your Twitter every once in a while, and maybe you can be next. And maybe when you link to Amazon through Talk is Jericho, you can give something back to the show. Click on the banner every time you shop online. Go to Talk is Jericho, click on Amazon, and give a little something-something back to this show so I can keep doing it for you for free. I'm taking calls here. I got Nick up there, the engineer of the show. You think he's cheap? This guy's working for top dollar, people. So, if you want to be able to keep calling into the show, keep hearing amazing guests like Scott Ian, and keep hearing me hanging out with you... And don't think I forgot. That costs a lot of money. That cowbell costs a lot of money. So if you want to help me out, go to podcastone.com, click on Talk is Jericho, and hit that Amazon link. No extra fees, no extra work, just kicking some back to the show that you know and love. And I know and love you. Thank you so much for being here. TGIF, it's Friday. Have a great weekend if you're listening to this on Friday. We'll see you next Wednesday. Peace and love. Stay hard, stay cool, stay heavy. God bless you all. We'll talk to you next week. You can download new episodes of Talk is Jericho every Wednesday and Friday at podcastone.com. That's podcastone.com. 